that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo back here with Sam Monson discussing the franchise tag. Who's getting tagged? Who might not get tagged? And what's that going to do for your team in free agency? Sam, we also have a great interview with Joe Thomas. Some technical difficulties. Yeah. But, man, Joe is fantastic every time we talk to him. Joe's internet died on us. Fancy NFL Network internet, and it just fell over. He goes off on NFL the NFL internet. So <laughs> the man is like hardwired into the mainframe, like the military, and yeah. it still didn't stop. It just falling. And then we over. had to go through the phone, and, and we got there though. And, and always a fascinating discussion with Joe Thomas. And I think it's just a further reminder when you're talking to some of the best players of all time, it is so much more than just physical skill and talent that they bring to the table. Like that guy knows the game inside and out, and knows the tackle position inside and out. So, yeah. a great discussion. Uh, we'll have that a little bit later on. So first, let's get into some franchise tag stuff, right? We You can technically start franchise tagging. It usually goes up to the wire. We have a couple more weeks, but we'll go through the 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 biggest tag candidates and what that means both for that team and the market. Sound good? Yep, let's right. do it. Let's start with Dak. It's the, the story of the offseason. Dak and the Cowboys, a tag would be – Almost $38 million mm-hmm. for this year. Do we think they're going to do it? And what are their other options if they don't? I think this is where it's going now, right? Don't you? That they're eventually going to end up having a franchise tag him? Because at this point, it's the cheaper option. Like if you're, The problem yeah. right now is if you're going to sign him to this long-term deal, the asking price has become north of $40 million a season. But usually you franchise tag to buy more time. Yes. How much more time do you need here? Another year. You're not getting it. Like, that's the problem is that everything they've done to this point has led them to this issue of a complete standoff in terms of asking price. We started negotiating when we were talking about $30 million a year, and we didn't really want to go above that. And everything that's happened since has pushed it from 30 to 40, 45. We sure as hell don't want to go there. So your two options now, if you're Dallas, are to say, nope, we're walking away. You're not this good. We're not paying you this level of money. We're going to take our chances in this world of having no starting quarterback right now. Good luck to you. Or to franchise tag him and buy yourself 12 months of negotiating or even just buy yourself 12 more months of Dak to then do the same thing in 12 months' time. Just just sign him at this point. Just sign him at this point. This was, this was the Cousins thing. Cousins had the two tags by yes. the football team a few years ago. And by the end of it, it's like if you just signed him to a three-year, $60 million, $65 million contract that he was probably going to get at that point, the third year essentially would have been like $8 bucks or something, but, right? It would have been just with quarterbacks, the inflation rate is so steep. Yes. Just sign them if you think they're good enough. And I think they, that Dallas does think Dak's good enough. 
But isn't that the problem that at this point, there's a fairly strong argument to make that like they've reached, they've passed the point where it actually makes sense to pay him now? Because look, the Dak Prescott argument is an argument similar to Kirk Cousins because there is a ceiling on how good he'll be. Now, Cousins played better in Minnesota than he ever played in Washington. And I think he probably has become a better player than they thought he was capable of being. But the Dak thing is he's going to get if he signs a long-term deal, he's going to get Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers money. He's not that good. And he's probably never going to be that good. He is in a tier below those guys. Now, it's not a long way below those guys, but it's 90 plus PFF grades to 85 PFF grades. And that's a significant step. So given all the money they've already thrown at people, which is its own problem, right? Zeke Elliott, uh, Jalen Smith, Amari Cooper, they've thrown around a lot of cap money already. Given that that's already happened, isn't there a, a defined argument to say they should have a line in the sand and we, we can't pay you $40-plus million a season because we get crippled? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I get that point. I also the, – the argument for the tag here is also will – what's the tipping point for quarterback contracts? Have we already hit the first tipping point because Mahomes has a new contract, Deshaun Watson has a new contract – Will there be another contract that's going to be comparable to what Dak could get that's going to kind of fly in Dallas's face? And yes, there is. I mean, Josh Allen mm -hmm. is going to get re-upped at some point. Yep. Lamar Jackson's going to get re-upped. Baker Mayfield's going to get right. re-upped. All those contracts are going to do more damage to this Dak Prescott negotiation. But could you, make, could you make an argument, though, that the, two, the three best quarterbacks in the NFL, Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, and Russell Wilson, three best at, in that age group. Okay. So it's Tom Brady first and then everybody else. Um, but take Brady and Rodgers out of the equation for a minute. The three best quarterbacks, like 32 and under, they're, all, they're already signed. Mm -hmm. They're already locked up. So could you make the point that Josh Allen's not in that group yet and Lamar's not in that group and Baker's not in there? The other, the other guys aren't in that group. So the ceiling is already set. And all those guys are going to do – is just kind of like join the DAC group. No, so I think to speak. I think Josh Allen is the contract that's going to ruin Dallas because Allen is the perfect example of hey, look, yes, the environment around him got really good as well, just like it did with Dak Prescott for periods, and when it did, he played at a ninety-plus level in terms of PFF grades this year. He was right up there in terms of accuracy. He played like an All-Pro caliber quarterback. Can you say the same thing for Dak Prescott? I don't think you can. And I don't think Dallas thinks you can, at which point there's a difference between those two guys. So you can make an argument that Josh Allen deserves the $40 million plus contract, the monster deal that joins those guys because he's the next one to sign. I don't know that you can make the same argument for Dak Prescott. And more to the point, like I think, I think Dallas is aware of all this. They know that there is a ceiling of how good Dak Prescott can be that is below that tier of quarterbacks. And that's why this thing isn't done already. So if that's true, and there's a, there's a point where they don't want to go beyond, there's only two things that can happen. Either they walk away right now and say, enjoy free agency, we're out. Or they say, all right, this isn't going to get done, probably, but we're not letting you walk for nothing. We're going to get one more year out of it before we, you know, bite the bullet. It is just, it's a fascinating situation here. I, I, I think if he wants 40, Let's say 40 APY, APY is what he's looking for, right? Yep. That would put him at number at two, just APY behind Patrick Mahomes right now. But Lamar could be up in that range and Allen could be up in that range. I don't know if Baker gets into that range. 
but we could be sitting here a year from now where the price is that much steeper because of those surrounding contracts or Dallas is saying, looking the other way and saying, well, Jared Goff and Carson Wentz. And it's, it's always this tug and this pull back and forth. And that's why it's, I think that's why it's gotten to this point, because honestly, if you wanted to make the point that Dak was never worth that money, you could, or if you wanted to make the point that the idea of having a top eight to 10 quarterback in the comfort level of having that when teams like the Patriots and the Bears and the football team are all stressing about who their quarterback's going to be and the the most likely quarterbacks for, say, the Patriots, the most attractive name on the list that's realistic is Marcus Mariota. It's a horrible list. There, it, it, and I like Mariota. He's fine, but I don't, you know, we don't want to build a program around him. So there are arguments that can be made on both sides. What's your ultimate prediction here? You think franchise tag then? I think, yeah, I think it's reached the point where Dak ends. I don't think that Dallas has the guts Pull the rug out, the pull the rug out from under this thing, and say it's not happening. You're not this good. We are not paying you this amount of money. Enjoy life somewhere else. See if the green the grass is greener somewhere that's going to pay you more money because we think it will be detrimental to the overall franchise going forward. So I don't think they have the guts to do that. So I think the two options are pay him his forty plus million dollars a season, or get him for one year at 38 or 37 or whatever the, the franchise tag is. 37.69. I agree that him hitting the open market is the least likely option, but I'm going to go with a I'm – I'm always just so optimistic. I don't mm. know why. But I think Dak and Dallas are going to figure it out. I think Deshaun and the Houston's going to figure it out. I think Seattle and Wilson are going to figure it out. Maybe, so I think Dak and Dallas are going to figure it out. Maybe Dallas could learn from uh, the negotiating style of Dan Campbell which is get Dak on a Zoom call, lean right into the camera, and say, we really want to get you signed. Can and you explain it, the story? Then it'll take care of itself. The story is that there was a report coming from the Lions ownership that said, you know what, let me tell you a great story about why we hired Dan Campbell. You know, we got on the Zoom call for the interview, and he leaned right into the camera and said, I really want this job. And that was it. I, from that point, I, then he was great, and we thought, yeah, Look, all these other guys came prepared with like plans of how to turn around the franchise, but none of them leaned into the camera and told us that they want the job. So, so we went with Dan. Interview advice here on the PFF NFL podcast. Look, it's all get. about speaking it into existence. What's that term? The the uh, the it's not the power of persuasion. Um, whatever it is, this idea of you just speak it into existence. That's what Dan did. He, he looked them right in the eye, eye right up to the Zoom camera, and said, uh, "I really want the job." I'm gonna I'm gonna speak more. To- to zoom cameras in general just right in right into the lens all right so i'm going to say dak and dallas figure out a long-term deal you're saying dak gets franchise tagged yes all right we're going to go through a few more candidates the wide receiver market the, the top three wide receivers on the pff draft board I, I i don't know that they're completely interchangeable but it's close kenny galladay chris godwin alan robinson not necessarily in any order let's discuss galladay first do we think he gets tagged by the Lions? I think the situation is so unique because their top three wide receivers are all free agents, yeah. Galladay, Danny Amendola, and Marvin Jones. But they also have this long-term rebuild here. So what's the point of tagging Galladay for one year? Or is this a tag and you know buy some time? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be, right? They It would be a tag, let's keep somebody in the building for this year, and then let's try and get him signed long-term over the next 12 months. Um, I think they have to keep him around with the franchise tag, even if it is only one year, because as you said, their entire receiving core is hitting the open market. And granted, 
most of it. You might be happy enough that they're walking out of the door, but you can't have nobody. You can't have no receivers. So bring back one that has a proven track record of being a quality player. It doesn't, I don't think it um, goes against this idea of a significant rebuild in the future, even if it's, I mean, even if it's a one-year deal, you can't, even a significant rebuild, you can't can't just be completely useless the next year. You have to have something. We talk a lot because it's media speak. We talk a lot about tanking and trying to get the number one overall pick and all that stuff. I mean, I don't care if Dan, you give Dan Campbell a hundred year contract, he's not going to tank. I mean, he's he's going to try to win every single game, right? But even if he like even if he was, there's there's like a limit, right? Even the Jags this year, they tore down that roster and basically aimed at the number one overall pick and Trevor Lawrence, and it worked. But they they like they had DJ Chark. They still had receivers. They didn't just go. Yeah, you right. know what? We're going to get five guys off the street a week before the season and, you know, just get blown out for 16 straight games and deal, deal with the consequences next year. We're just going to make sure it's Mike Glennon and Jake Luton throwing to them. That's how we're going <laughs> to trick everybody. But there's like a limit. You need something, you know, like let's, maybe it's Kenny Galladay and nobody else, but at least have something there. Here's why I think Kenny Galladay needs to be a lion next year. You kind of want to know what you have in Jared Goff yeah. as well. And, and the, for two reasons, at the, at the very least, up his value – Right for another potential trade down the road, if the Lions are investing in, say, a Trey Lance or a long-term project at quarterback, you want Jared Goff to look good on the football field. Then there's the chance that he looks, I don't know, really good, and you're like, oh, okay, we can we can actually win with Jared Goff. So I think the Lions, because the the wide receiver situation is so dire, you got to go franchise Kenny Galladay with hopes of of locking him up. So we're predicting yes on that, both of us. Yeah, I, yes, I think they keep him on. He's he's got a proven track record of some pretty impressive play. He's you know a, a great contested catch guy. Um, now you can argue that he's too good at contested catches relative to everything else, and actually requires a sort of gunslinging attitude of Matthew Stafford to get the most out of him. And yeah. does, does Jared Goff add that? Not a hundred percent convinced, but you know the guy throwing at Kenny Galladay last season generated a pass rating of 119 throwing at him for his career has generated one of 105 he is a quality big bodied receiver that can run you need to keep him around are you saying he just needs a nice receiver like a Matthew Stafford that's what Detroit should do at quarterback uh no i'm oh, okay. saying those two meshed very well they did. i don't know if uh if Jared Goff will all right another receiver uh Chris Godwin his fr- the franchise amount for him fifteen point eight, just like uh, Kenny Galladay's. For the Bucks, they got they they want to run it back, right? They want to mm-hmm. bring the band back together. Tom Brady's in the last year of his contract right now. Maybe he'll get extended for another year or two, whatever it might be, whatever he decides, right? But the idea of rolling it back with Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, technically Antonio Brown's a free agent, technically Gronk is a free agent, but we're, you're expecting them back. Godwin going to be tagged by the Bucs? They're debating between him and Shaq Barrett. Yeah, they're, Tampa Bay's only issue is that they have a lot of business to get done. It's not necessarily that any of them are insurmountable. Um, I, I One of Chris Godwin or Shaq Barrett is going to get tagged. Uh, they're going to use the tag on one of those guys. The question will be which one are they further along in terms of negotiating with. I suspect they're further along with Shaq Barrett just on the basis that it's been coming from further down the line. They knew they already franchise-tagged him. They knew that this thing was coming. They've they've been working on this for a while. At this point, surely they've, they're somewhere close to having a long-term deal with him done. He did back up last year. 
not in sack totals, but he got a lot of pressure, which is kind of right. what we predicted before the season. He was a good player again. So I would imagine they can get a long-term deal with him done, at which point the franchise tag is there for use on Chris Godwin. I think it probably makes sense to use it on him. Yeah, I, I think I think Godwin's the mo- more important player for the Bucs. For perspective, PFF free agency rankings over at pff.com, we've ranked over 200, well, 200 players to this point. Chris Godwin is our top top ranked wide receiver on the free agent rankings. I understand. I, I think Allen Robinson might be a better player, mm-hmm. um, but three years younger yeah. is Chris Godwin, about two and a half, three years younger. So that's a part of the reason here. It's it's Chris Godwin's second contract. He can win in the slot. He can win outside. And he's shown he can essentially be a true number one. He hasn't had to be for the Bucs because of that receiving core. I think he's the more important player though, because you just, you don't want 44-year-old Tom Brady to have any drop off in his help, I don't think. Yeah. And it, it showed having all those weapons just how valuable that is on their Super Bowl run. I think Godwin is also a better player than people are going to think he is because he's not coming off the best stretch of his career. Um, the guy has some of the best hands in the NFL, but he had nine drops this season, seven of which came in the playoffs. It was ridiculous, but yeah. it was you know, like a rare occurrence. Had right, that so that's the thing. So you're, you're coming at this and you're saying, well, this guy didn't play particularly well down the stretch, dropped a ton of passes in the playoffs. He didn't have a great year, period. Um, and that will, I think, sway a lot of people's interpretation of how good he is. Whereas really, if you say, okay, drops come and go, sometimes you're going to drop a bunch of passes. It happens. It's not ideal. But unless you're Larry Fitzgerald, you're going to drop some every now and again. Um, Godwin had that. Let's assume it's not going to happen because – in no previous year of his career has he dropped more than two passes. Um, so he's going to be better next year, and that makes him a better player than this year. All right, so Godwin, I'm I'm expecting the franchise tag from the Bucs. Yep. I think they will try to lock up Shaq Barrett long-term. I don't know if they'll be able to, but I think they're going to try. Hmm. But I'm going to say Godwin is the franchise tag candidate for the Bucs. Do our do we think our do our listeners need a little explanation on the franchise tag? I'm just thinking about this. Do you have a little explanation on the franchise tag? I mean, just a what simple. Yeah, it just keeps right, your. Give me your just, Cliff Notes version. What do you got? It essentially pays the player the average of the top five at his position, and you get paid for one year. So okay. it, it keeps it keeps guaranteed. a player. It's one year guaranteed, but it keeps a player from free agency. Players generally hate it because players love free agency. Even though they get paid a lot of money for one year, they want that four- and five-year contract. Do you right? know where it came from? Uh, I don't know the history, necessarily. This idea was hatched because Pat Bolin, late owner of the Denver Broncos, late owner, right? He died. I think so. I'm right yes. in saying that. Um, didn't think that he would be able to keep hold of John Elway unless like a free agency just became a complete free-for-all. He didn't think he would be able to match the offers on the table for John Elway. So he essentially created this idea of being able to lock down one franchise tag player uh, to keep them in the building and and not let those guys hit free agency. And it, it was originally the whole concept was only ever going to be quarterbacks. Like it never occurred to anybody that you might want to use it for something else. Like a kicker. Right. It's been used. On. Um, but originally it was just a quarterback thing and then they opened it up for all positions. Uh, but yeah, that's where it came from. They, they the Denver Broncos essentially not wanting to let John Elway run out of the building. Yeah, it's funny because I think there's some like the way people use it. They're like, oh, they they designated him as the franchise player. Like they think he's the franchise. They're building around him. Like there's still people I think who have that perception because it's called 
franchise player. And that's I mean, what it was supposed to be, essentially. Right, but but it's literally just like the most recent free agent that you're just you know in the middle of negotiations with, and you want to make sure he stays in. I don't know. Maybe there's some of our listeners who don't know the exact mechanics of that. But yeah, so you're signing a guy for a one-year deal, and they'll be a free agent again next year if you don't sign them. So we're predicting franchise tag for Kenny Galladay and Chris Godwin, two of the top three wide receivers on the market. The guy that is the other receiver, as we mentioned, is Allen Robinson with the Bears. Are they going to bring him back on the tag? Maybe. Um, this is a weird situation because apparently it's been reported that the Bears essentially haven't contacted Allen Robinson about the contract. Now, that's not necessarily as bad as it sounds because we're, what, February the 25th? This is usually combine week, and combine week is kind of when that whole thing starts to spool up. It's, it's silly in a way because the NFL has all year to do this, but they don't. They're no, they busy. go to a steakhouse in Indianapolis and, you know, talk shop. Right, but they're busy most of the time. And in Indy, you're, you get into this sort of team-building thing and you start talking to agents over a steak, and that's when you get the deals, like, started. You get the deal somewhere down the line. So it's not necessarily crazy that they haven't, like, gotten particularly far down the road or, in fact, anywhere down the road with Robinson. Um, but he wants out <laughs> at this point. Like, he doesn't... Whatever about the Bears not necessarily warming to a long-term deal with him and how serious they are, he doesn't want to be there anymore. And it's not that he wouldn't if they came with a giant deal, but like he's going to try and get out if he can. But Chicago can't love the idea of letting him walk for nothing. Even, right. I mean, a, comp- a compensatory pick, maybe, but like you're going to want to get something from him. So I could see him being a tag-and-trade candidate particularly with teams like the Patriots lurking who desperately need receiver help if you could slap the wide receiver franchise tag on Allen Robinson and get or convince New England to send a first round pick your way to get that to get a proven superstar receiver I think they'd be all for that this is the uh, Allen Robinson mind-blowing stat of the show here since entering the league only 64% of Allen Robinson's targets have been deemed catchable. So on target or, you know, just again, catchable, have the ability to be caught. That is 93rd out of 102 qualifiers during that time. 93rd, 64%. Um, it's the ninth percentile that's ranking. Yeah. So that is with, you know, that's his time with the Jaguars, with Blake Bortles at quarterback, his time with Chicago, with Trubisky and Foles at quarterback. Now, he does run routes a little bit further down the field. You're going to get fewer catchable targets, but I think it sums up. He's not played with a good quarterback. We've said this over and over and over again. I can only imagine how much he's itching to get to the open market, and I don't know if a team like the Packers has the money for him or anything like that, but if you're Allen Robinson, you want to hit the market and, and just look around and say, Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Watson, like give me the best quarterback. I want to go play with that guy for once in my life. The Tampa Bay situation this year has sort of highlighted again this trade-off that you can make between the maximum amount of money you can potentially earn and a team that actually has a real shot at winning a championship. And Chris Godwin has talked about this, right? Yeah, sure, I want to maximize the amount of money I can earn. On the other hand, like, I'm not crazy. I'm not going to walk away from a team with another shot of a Super Bowl next year for nothing. Right? I'm going to need, there's going to need to be something significant to offset the advantage that I have here in Tampa. And Robinson, I think, now needs to make that choice himself that do I just go where the most money is again, which is basically what he did with Chicago, right? He chose the Bears over other potential suitors when he left Jacksonville coming off that ACL injury. 
he chose Chicago. And there were Bears fans, I think, primarily that will throw that at you when you're like, you know, poor Allen Robinson. The guy's dealing with the worst quarterback situation in the NFL consistently. That, you know, the, the idea, the meme of Robinson just running routes and the ball sailing over his head or miles out of the side of him, the data backs it up. It's not just a joke on Twitter. Like, that is that guy's life. But as people point out, he basically chose it. I mean, he determined that he wanted to go to Chicago, and now that's what you have to live with. But because of that, he has to be looking at his situation and saying, I am willing to take a reasonable amount less money to go somewhere that I know has a good quarterback because I can't keep doing this. This is miserable. He seems like the guy that if he gets tagged, yeah, he's really upset. Godwin's fine. I don't know. I mean, I don't know these guys, but I, I think Galladay would still probably be fine. He'd All these guys want to hit the open market, of course, but, oh, man, you got to – potentially fractured relationship if he gets tagged and he's back in Chicago but I think that might happen it is just because the Bears have enough other needs they have enough other holes including trying to figure out the quarterback situation and if they're going to try to attract a quarterback somehow um, if it's Dak hitting the open market or whatever it is it's easier if you have Allen Robinson as a starting point for your weapons so I'm going to say he gets tagged as well there's one more receiver to discuss who is a, a franchise tag possibility and then we get to talk about how this affects the yeah. receiver market I do, I do think the robinson if he's tagged is tagged and traded not just tagged, tagged and, and traded okay so that's a, it and listen because of what that does to the free agent market that might be the way to go if you're the bears tag and trade in the desperate teams that need playmakers are looking to the bears now will fuller's number 11 on our free agent board the fourth wide receiver he's another franchise tag candidate for the houston texans I think they might lean tag there too. And all the, and the, the fallout, of course, is the top four receivers on the market are all out. I think the Texans would be willing to walk away from Will Fuller at this point. Um, this, I mean, they're blowing their rebuilding. Whether, I mean, they let J.J. Watt walk out of the building. I can't see a way that the Deshaun Watson thing gets resolved where he's still there. I just, the, he wants out. If, if your franchise quarterback wants the hell out of the building, you kind of need to let him go because you can't just you can't just stuff him in there and say, nope, you're contracted to us. Deal with it. Get happy. It's not going to happen. He wants out. They're going to rebuild this thing, at which point what is Will Fuller really achieving for you? Eh. I, I mean, also this year, there were some really weird splits for Deshaun Watson when Will Fuller was on or off the field in the past, even with New Hopkins there. You would think that New Hopkins was the guy that moved the needle in terms of whether that offense was working or not. But Will Fuller seemed to be the guy that did that. This year, without New Hopkins, though, those splits disappeared. And it wasn't there wasn't a night and day difference when Will, Will Fuller was on the field or not, which I think will make, I mean, assuming the Texans are aware of him, would make you reassess how important he is to your offense. And given his injury history and all those kind of things, plus he's still, is he, He's dealing with a suspension, right? That's what I'm trying to figure out, too. I think he um, still might have a couple games left. But that's but that's the other thing. He's coming off a career year. But a, like a quiet career year PEDs where EDs were involved. Yes. But also a quiet career year where you didn't really notice it because like, it didn't help. You know what I mean? If he'd had the career year like last year and they'd won a lot of games, and he'd be like, oh, yeah. But no. Uh, it is Fuller is a fascinating player because he is he's a legitimate deep threat. I think he does open up things around him. The numbers did say that, even if they said less about that this year. But average 16.6 per reception last year. Like, you just, you know, me and speed guys. 4-3 mm. speed guys. I didn't love, love him coming out. I thought he was more of a second-round player. But I've 
I've changed my tune on the speed guys like Fuller. Mike Renner loved him as a first-round caliber player. I think he's shown that. It's just the injury history and inconsistency is an issue. So you you, th- you don't think they tag him? Nope. If they don't tag him, okay, if Will Fuller becomes the top free agent on the market in this scenario, along with, like you said, tr- maybe Allen Robinson as a, as a tag and trade. The fallout here is the other options on the wide receiver market. Juju Smith-Schuster, a guy who at one point kind of looked like a number one, tapered off a little bit, has done a lot of his best work from the slot. He's just 24 years old, though. Mm-hmm. So, but, but, but he's not a guy, he's not a number one. No. Like those other guys. Corey Davis, I love him, but he's a number two, right? He's a number two option that is going to make over $10 million a year in free agency, more than likely, maybe closer to 15 that we project, 15 or 16. This is where the wide receiver market becomes a little scarier. Antonio Brown, T.Y. Hilton, Curtis Samuel, Marvin Jones, guys that are older, and these are the guys that get signed for like two- and three-year contracts that come free agency two and three years from now, they're getting released. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, in on paper, it looks like a great wide receiver group in free agency. But if the franchise tag gets slapped on all the top guys, it gets pretty bare pretty quickly. All right, other franchise tag candidates. We're going down um, it's kind of a random list here. Oops, our guy Brad Spielberg. I just hit the just hit the table. Mm. Not supposed to acknowledge it, but I did. You I are quite the ungainly moose over there at times. There's a lot of I can. I, if I have coffee on the desk, you inevitably like come here with your giant moose paws and just bash this thing sideways and the coffee's everywhere keep a cover on the coffee is my (sighs) suggestion all right our guy brad spielberger going to be writing up all the uh franchise tag reactions as they go the carolina panthers could be in the market for taylor mouton being their franchise player it's an issue here because they don't have a starting tackle at either spot russell okung and taylor mouton both hitting free agency do we expect the tag here for mouton he's our number two tackle Uh, yeah i think there's a chance they do use it on him in part because of what you said that they're both hitting free agency but also he's become you know a really good player for them um allowed allowed 20 total pressures this season has never allowed more than 30 in a season four years of consistent good pff grading albeit one of them you know 70 snaps doesn't really count but three straight years of good pass blocking grades uh average to good run blocking grades He's become a cornerstone player on the offensive line. You shouldn't let those guys walk out the door, even for a healthy second contract. So if you haven't got a deal over the line yet, that seems like a perfect one to buy that extra year. Yeah, Mouton's our number 12 ranked overall player on the draft board. 90th percentile pass blocker on true pass sets. That is the best measure of future pass blocking performance. That's when you take out play action, you take out three-step drops. How good are you? in must pass block situations he's one of the best scheme diverse as a run blocker carolina needs to do everything they can to keep him there so i think they should definitely work to lock him up but i think the franchise tag along the way might make sense so i'm expecting him to stay in carolina let's go to the safety market justin simmons it sounds like could get tagged again for the second time now by the denver broncos that amounts over 13 million dollars simmons has emerged as one of the better safeties in the league over the last couple years it is a fascinating safety market. We have Simmons at number one among safeties, six overall on our free agent board, but then Anthony Harris, Marcus Williams, Marcus May, and John Johnson the third, all in the top 23 in our safety rankings. Is this the right move for Denver to keep Simmons in town? 
Um, I think probably. The safety is one of those uh, weird positions where I think it's still, uh, there's still value to franchise tags. There are some positions where the franchise tag, because of the way it works, you know, the average of the top five uh, best paid players at that uh, position, there are certain positions where that's better value than others, you know, where the contracts at the top are actually fairly reasonable. So you are better potentially going off with the franchise tag. And I think safety is one of them. It's a little over 10 million, 10 and a half million, I guess, um, for safety. I think that's not a bad chunk of money for a guy that's as good as he is. When you look at, you know, some of the safeties out there are earning 15 million a year. I would be all for that. Yeah. Buda Baker average per year over the last, uh, among safeties right now, Buda Baker, Eddie Jackson, Kevin Byard, Landon Collins, Tyron Matthew, all over, all $14 million or above. I think that is a great deal. Uh, Justin Simmons this year made $11.4 uh, 11. on the franchise tag. He's 28 years old. Again, we keep using, hey, buy your time to, to lock him up. I think Simmons in that system, though, too, with Vic Fangio and what he asks safeties to do, play too high, roll into the box, roll to free safety. He does it all, and he's done it really well these last couple of years. Um, so I like that for Denver to try to keep him, try to keep him in town. I think they will franchise tag him. I'm doing it again. Why am I just, am I in a different spot here? Why do I keep hitting this table? I think you're just that mal coordinated. Any of these other top safeties? I mean, Marcus Williams with the saints. I think they have to let him walk, right? Yeah. This think- is, it's a really good safety group. This free agency. I mean, there is a ton of talent there and talent getting released all the time. There's talk the Raiders are about to cut LaMarcus Joyner. And, you know, what are you talking about? He's a slot cornerback. But his PFF grade at safety is 90. Like, move the guy back to where he's supposed to be. And he's one of the better safeties in the NFL. Guys like that are hitting the open market and they're going to be available for not an awful lot. So if you have a Justin Simmons, I can see a case for franchise tagging somebody as good as that. But, you know, I, I think there's also a lot of argument for saying, hey, let your safety walk and grab one cheaper in free agency. Here's what I'll say, though. The, the other guy that's getting uh, you know, franchise tag talk is Marcus May of the New York Jets. May and uh, Justin Simmons, who we just talked about, are two guys that are more scheme diverse than the other safeties on the market. Sure. So May has played every role there. He played the Jamal Adams in the box role. He played the – I always make the – Greg Williams, free safety in the parking lot role, right? Mm-hmm. 20 yards off. The, he's played it all, made a ton of plays on the ball. I think there's a reason why Marcus May and Justin Simmons are the only two, uh, the two most likely franchise tag candidates at safety. Anthony Harris of the Vikings, more of a free safety, a little bit more limited role-wise. Marcus Williams, same thing with the Saints. More uh, of a limited role and a guy that is a free safety, a really good free safety, one of the best in the league. And then John Johnson, same thing with the Rams. You know, he's more of a free safety type. But we've talked about the safety market a little bit here on the show. The idea that former first-rounders Malik Hooker, Keanu Neal are out there, Jaquiski Tart, Deron Harmon, even Deron Harmon and Trey Boston. Like, if you just want good, solid, free safeties, those guys are out there. They're they're not going to play the do-it-all Derwin James safety role, but those guys are out there. They're ranked, you know, ranked in the hundreds on our board but you can get those guys a lot cheaper trey boston just got released by the carolina panthers so um i think there's a reason why we have five really good safeties in the top 23 but only two i think marcus may justin simmons are the two potentially that get tagged do you think there's a chance marcus williams gets tagged with the saints Uh, no just because if for no other reason than the saints are in their permanent position of having no 
salary cap space to play with. If like if anybody needs to squeeze here and there, it's the Saints. John Johnson with the Rams potentially. He's been really good when he's been on the field. Yeah, it's uh, possible. I I don't. Yeah, I don't know if they would do it, but I I would. John Johnson's been really good for them, and he was a really important part of the defense this year in particular. But given what we just said about the sheer wealth of talent at the position this year, I would be inclined for him to let him hit the market and try and get something cheaper. There are rumors that Keanu Neal could get tagged by the Atlanta Falcons. We have him making far less guaranteed money on the open market. Um, he only he had, he had played 900-plus snaps this year, but the previous two seasons just over 200 snaps. So he'd been battling injuries. He's your prototypical box, cover three type of safety, strong safety. But, man, I, I don't see the Falcons tagging him as part of this rebuild. Yeah, I that would well. I it's possible they do. I think it would be a pretty big mistake if they did. I mean, Keanu Neal looked. This is a this is a great example of how you know just give it some time before you make declarations as to you know see idiot you got it wrong you know based off like half a season's worth of play. Keanu Neal right off the bat was making us look ridiculous because we didn't love him as a prospect coming out. And his first season, he had a, a PFF coverage grade of 80, was making all these big hits, some uh, big plays, nine pass breakups that year, uh, a bunch of forced fumbles, five of them in that first season. And year one, it was like, oh, we we missed. What do we get wrong on Keanu Neal? Let's go back and check why his college grading wasn't great or what we could have seen different. Like since that, A, injuries have really bitten deep. Two seasons basically lost to injury. But he also hasn't gotten back to that level of play either. Like he had a good season against the run the following year, but hasn't been anywhere near that coverage grade since, which a lot of the time is built off those splash plays that come and go. Yeah, I will say, though, I mean, back at the time, we definitely we had him more as a, I'd say, I think, third-round prospect, if anything. Yeah, but, didn't like him at all. But when we went through, when you go back through his college grading, the Falcons had a, a plan for him. He played a lot of free safety at Florida. That's where he struggled from a grading standpoint. When you did put him close to the line of scrimmage, he was good. That's where he's excelled in the Falcon scheme. That's the nature of safety and corner and receiver. It's it's about role and how you play those guys. Um, so the Falcons at least had a pretty good plan for Neal. So when he's been on the field, he's been a, a pretty good player. So um, let's go to the Buffalo Bills, potentially franchise tagging Daryl Williams at right tackle. What a... What a fascinating career career path for Daryl Williams. He's only really had a couple good seasons. Mm -hmm. um, not so good season in the middle of that at guard. But when he's played right tackle, he's had two years in his career where he's been among the best right tackles in the league. One was in 2017, and one was last year in 2020. And given what Buffalo has done, I, again, I love what they've done rebuilding that team. Getting pretty good along the offensive line. Not great, just good enough along the offensive line, and then surrounding Josh Allen with those playmakers, bringing Darrell Williams back could be a huge move because they've got some other weaknesses at guard that they're trying to address as well. Yeah, it is it is a strange, uh, just a strange career for him. Before that 2017 season, the Panthers had been telling us that they loved this guy. They thought he was a quality starting right tackle. He was going to be really good. And there hadn't really been anything on his tape to say that. There was... You know, his first season, he barely played. Second season, he played a reasonable amount, but was average at best across the board. You were like, I'm not really seeing this, but they they were adamant. And then 2017, he was genuinely excellent. He you know, allowed a reasonable amount of pressure, but his PFF grade was really good as a pass blocker. 
And then 2018 got hurt. 2019, he didn't play right tackle. So then when he got back in at that position in Buffalo, he's back to playing really well. So you can definitely look at that and say, this guy is a high-quality starting right tackle in particular when it comes to pass blocking, which is obviously the most important aspect of the game. So, yeah, like let's, let's give him a healthy deal or lock him down. I, I think they should sign him. I, I think they should sign Darrell Williams long-term, uh, address guard. You know, they've got Deion Dawkins at left tackle, who's solid. Solid is the name of the game for the Bills along the offensive line. It's not a great group of tackles in free agency. Lock De- Dion, lock him down, you know, or uh, Daryl Williams, lock him down and not have to deal with having a below average right tackle because th- those are the types of things that can derail Josh Allen in his development, having that offensive line looking like it did earlier in his career. Um, here's a fascinating franchise tag decision New York Giants. They have two. We always joke about Dave Gettleman and his love for big interior defensive linemen. Drafted Dexter Lawrence a couple years ago. Had Dalvin Tomlinson already and brought in Leonard Williams. Both Tomlinson and Williams hit free agency now. Dexter Lawrence, you know, he's going to hit free agency in about two years and three years. But, I mean, they're going to pay him a lot of money very shortly. So, the Giants have a tag discussion here between Tomlinson and Leonard Williams. But all reports are that they're going to... They really want to pay Leonard Williams 18 to $20 million a year and, and lock him up long-term. He has been one of the most valuable interior defensive linemen in the league because of his durability, solid pass rusher, really good run defender. If they do lock up Leonard Williams, would they still franchise tag <laughs> Dalvin Tomlinson? That is so much money. Tied up in interior defenders. It is, but but maybe... It's the right move, though, because you get so Leonard Williams is your long term piece. Dexter Lawrence is still on his rookie contract. One more year of Dalvin Tomlinson is not the worst thing in the world. And in today's NFL, if you could, those are three above average run defenders and pretty good pass rushers. Pretty good. If you can r- stop the run with fewer bodies, so it, we, we joke, but stop the run with fewer bodies, this might be the way to do it. Maybe the Giants are onto something here. That would be assigning something in the region of $40 million to three interior run-stuffing defensive linemen in a league where the salary cap is going to be like 180. That's madness. There's, there's, there's no way you can dress that up to being the right move. Yeah, maybe you know, run playing the run with big bodies and not, not needing to crowd the box with extra guys is actually kind of important. There's just no way you can just convince me. It's not that me. important? Yeah, there's just no way you can convince me it's worth $40 million on three players, none of whom are like, none of whom are superstars. You know, yeah. it's not like you're telling me that um, one of those guys there is an absolute cast iron dominant all pro who's the best run defender in the NFL in addition to being able to get some pressure. That's just not worth it. Maybe, maybe keep one of them. Maybe pay one of them. If you can get Lenny, Lenny Williams for the big, whatever, $18, $19 million a season, okay. I'm not sure I'd do it, but fine. You can't then franchise tag Dalvin Tomlinson. So Leonard Williams right now, number 19 on our free agent board, our number one interior defensive lineman. Dalvin Tomlinson, our number two interior defensive lineman, 40th on our free agent board. We only have four interior defensive linemen in our top 100 in the, on the free agent board because there's guys like Ndamukong Sue at 100. 
He's 34 years old. There's guys like Sheldon Rankins, injuries and inconsistency. Tyson Alu-Alu hasn't been good until his year 30, his age 32 season starting two years ago. Kawan Short, who 32 years old and coming off two injury-prone seasons. There's not a whole lot on the market when it comes to interior defensive linemen. And Leonard Williams is the number nine most valuable player at that position since 2017. If they lock him up for $20 million a year, as we project, is that too much for a guy who's very good, consistent, solid? You know what you're getting for him, but $20 million a year for Leonard Williams? I think it probably is. I wouldn't do it, but, you know, <laughs> they appear intent on, so it doesn't really matter what I would do. All right, my prediction here is Leonard Williams long-term, and I, I don't – I can't imagine that they would throw the franchise tag at Dalvin Tomlinson. No. This the, one of the reasons I wouldn't do that. By the way, is I I can see an argument for that kind of move if you're the, the same deal that the Colts made with DeForest Buckner, where it's like, all right, that's more than I would pay him, but you had a ton of cap space to play with, and you kind of needed to spend some money. The Giants are not in that situation. The Giants have nine hundred thousand dollars of cap space right now. They are not like so saddled with cap space that they can just burn a, an overpaid contract on somebody because they like that player they're in a position where they actually need to be frugal and sensible and pick their spots with, with where they spend the money, at which point I don't know there's a great argument that Leonard Williams has justified that kind of deal. My, my prediction is that they, that they do it, but I'm with you, man. I th there's so many other holes on this roster. I like the idea of having that trio up there. I think that's fine, but not at that price. And I think when you look at what they have to do, potentially a cornerback to get better – at receiver to get better, at offensive line to get better. I mean, there's there's way too much where the Giants have to invest. Um, so we'll see what they're able to do beyond. But so I'm going to predict Dalvin Tomlinson's on the market, and he becomes the top interior defensive lineman out there. And Leonard Williams either gets tagged or tagged and signed. Yep. Uh, let's go to the Chargers and Hunter Henry at tight end, top tight end on the market. I think it's another another position. I by the way, I've seen people all over the place as far as the draft and the strength of the draft when it comes to tight ends I've heard people say oh there's there's five legit starters out there I think our board has more two more like two legit starters Kyle Pitts is in a different world Pat Fryermuth from Penn State borderline first round early second round type of type of player but the free agent market at, at tight end Hunter Henry Jonu Smith guy maybe underutilized in that Titans offense you know good athlete Gerald Everett similar player but beyond that, you know, Gronk, does he even count as a free agent? He's going back to the Bucs. Jared Cook, he's 34. So, again, it's not a great tight end market. Would the Chargers be smart to keep Hunter Henry around for one year? Eh, maybe. They're in a tough spot because the, the uh, tight end, I think, is another one of those positions where the franchise tag is usually a reasonable number. But Hunter Henry was already on a $10.6 million deal, so it's pushed a higher number for him. Franchise tag to keep him around is 12.7. He's probably worth it, but, you know, I don't know that you're going to want to get that done as opposed to try and find cheaper, better options for uh, for Justin Herbert uh, in the draft or free agency and just let Hunter Henry move on what seems like it's going to happen inevitably anyway. You might as well. I, I think you should just rip that Band-Aid off now and, you know, try and find successors. I think, I think we're at a dire time for – tight ends around the league it's not that the position itself is bad it's just kind of like top there's just some teams that have a terrible situation a terrible tight end situation whether it's the patriots the panthers 
the Bengals. I mean, there are some teams who seriously need some tight end help. I think Hunter Henry sees the market, and I think he gets paid. I think there are, there are people – he's maybe a couple years removed from his best work, but there are some people who see that work, and they're like, that's a top five tight end. Good, good run blocker, one of the better route runners, intermediate, short threat. Uh, you know, Jacksonville's a team. I think if you're trying to, you know, make, make Trevor Lawrence happy, you know, early in his career where he could go, I think Hunter Henry gets paid. On yeah. the open market. I mean, he's the only sort of 26-year-old, clean, high-end, tight end available that you can guarantee will be a very productive player regardless of where he's going if he's healthy, at which point, you're right, he should get monster money. So similar question now for Jonu Smith. Number 32 on our free agent board, tight end for the Tennessee Titans. Not really a well-known name, but last year, last year our number 12-graded tight end. Not 2019, our number 18-graded tight end. He's outstanding after the catch. He's an okay run blocker. But it's not like they're feeding him, you know, 80 to 100 targets over there in Tennessee. Here's the big question. You've gotten you've gotten essentially two career years out of Ryan Tannehill with A.J. Brown, with Corey Davis, with Jonu Smith there. Corey Davis and Jonu Smith, both free agents now. The Titans have other holes. They are desperate for pass rushers as our friend Ramon Foster, who does Tennessee radio, is that's all he asks about. So all they're worried about is pass rushers, maybe corner, but they're going to be they're going to have some serious issues if they've got nobody for Tannehill to throw to next year. Yeah, I mean, last year for Tennessee was all about, let's run it back. Let's re-sign Tannehill. Let's re-sign Derrick Henry. Let's do it all. Um, and that worked. I, we didn't think necessarily that it would, but all of those things that they brought back actually functioned the same way. Um, they're, I mean... To an extent, this is the same situation, but it's of lesser players. So do you still take the same approach of, we've actually hit on this great formula now, let's keep the band intact? Or do you say, eh, I mean, Derek Henry and Ryan Tannehill were really important. John U. Smith and Corey Davis, we can take or leave. Um, I, I think certainly Corey Davis, you could make the argument that, look, we can we can live without Corey. Bye-bye. Yeah. Um, John U. Smith... You can make the same argument. I don't know if it's as true, though, because in part of what you were just saying, that it's not that easy to find really good tight ends, particularly athletic, dynamic ones, um, that it is a receiver. There's a lot of receivers that can do a Corey Davis role. I mean, even in the draft, you'll find a bunch. I don't know if the same thing is true at tight end. So, like, Tennessee might actually think seriously about trying to lock him down. This is why last year at this time I was mocking T. Higgins – to the Titans and having a nice forward-looking approach saying, look, get one more year out of Corey Davis, then he hits free agency, then T. Higgins is the number two opposite A.J. Brown or Brandon Ayuk or whoever that other receiver was. Instead, they drafted Isaiah Wilson, who's mm. pretty much done with them after three kneel-down snaps. Um, not that that was the issue. I, I just think they didn't have the proper forward-looking approach here, and now they're playing whack-a-mole with the roster they're trying to <laughs> It, together. it can't go down as one of the biggest busts of all time because it wasn't a high enough draft pick. I think that has to factor in when you're talking about like greatest busts ever. It's got to be like the number, you know, somewhere in a top five pick to be that kind of category. It's in RJ Soward territory, Sam. Okay. But even RJ Soward had a, had a play, leg, Jaguars legend, by the way. Of course. Had a play where he torched Deion Sanders of the Washington football team yeah. in 2000. 
on a post route for a touchdown. Yeah. Even RJ Soward had an NFL highlight. What about um, who was the guy that the 49ers drafted the same year as the Chiefs had? AJ Jonathan Jenkins. Baldwin. AJ Jenkins and Jonathan Baldwin. Um, but this is like, and, and it's made look even worse when you look at the rest of the first round tackle class. Here's the deal, though. Here's the deal. Listen, Isaiah, AJ Jenkins is the example I use when I say teams bust, not players. Isaiah Wilson was not a first-round prospect as a player. Forget the off-field. Forget the fact that everything's been an absolute train wreck. He wasn't an on-field first-round player. That's on the Titans. That's the Titans' fault. It's not Isaiah Wilson's fault. It's not A.J. Jenkins' fault that he didn't play like a first-round receiver. He was a third-round receiver, fourth-round receiver, and they picked him in the first round. Same thing with Isaiah Wilson. He was never a first-round prospect. Never. Now, the off-field stuff makes it look that much worse. He'd be, he'd be a bust for, as a third-rounder if he just played four yes. snaps. But here we I are. I mean, yeah, the off-field stuff is pretty catastrophic. That, I, I don't understand. I mean, I guess it's hard to know sometimes you know, how much a guy is just feeding you crap when you're talking to him. But all the stuff you hear NFL teams talk about, about how important those in-person meetings are and just talking. And I think you probably do figure out a lot every now and again where you see a guy and you're like, okay, there's no way we're ever drafting that guy based off the two-minute conversation I just had with him. I just, what I'm, I guess my question is, I find it, I don't know how a guy that bad in terms of just self-destruction from day one, immediately torpedoing himself out of the league. How does he put on a facade good enough for you to not find, to see something about that in 15 minutes? It feels like if you're that big of a head case, in terms of just do not give a crap, I am out of this league in five minutes, now that I got the money, how does how do you not get some kind of warning sign from the 15-minute meeting you have with him? I don't know. Every team last year seemed to just only draft guys that love football. So yeah. maybe you just you got to get the love football guys. Maybe gotta... he leaned close to them and said, I love football. Oh, and they were like, dude, guy loves football. If Sign him. First round. If you're round. a prospect, right, and you go into a, you're going to have a Zoom meeting with the Lions. Leaning close. I love football. I want to be your first-round pick. I want to bite every kneecap. Yeah, on lean the way in. up. Get a lean in. On the way up. On the way up. We're gonna, it's no good on the way down. We're going to bring this city back. We're from the ground. Anyway, let's. I think the Titans could franchise Jonu Smith here. I think there's an argument they potentially should. As I say, he might be a more important part of that offense than I think people are giving him credit for. Uh, and the strategy of roll it back, run it back, did work. So maybe do that. All right, another potential franchise candidate, a couple of interesting ones. Arizona Cardinals, Hassan Reddick, and Seattle Seahawks, Shaquille Griffin. Is there an argument for either one, NFC West here? Shaquille Griffin, cornerback for the Seahawks, Hassan Reddick, edge slash linebacker, more of an edge now for the Cardinals, coming off of an incredible five-game stretch. Yeah. Um, the argument, the only argument to me is Seattle with Griffin, and it's only because, like, what do they do at cornerback if they don't have Griffin? because Dunbar is also available and they don't really have anybody else. So they're in a situation. It's almost like the Lions. It's, okay, maybe you don't want to franchise tag Shaquille Griffin and give him monster money given the inconsistencies we've seen from his tape in the NFL. On the other hand, what is your alternative plan? Because you're about to be presented with a situation where you don't have anybody at that position. So are you just in a, position, are you just in a spot now where you have to make that happen? Yeah, go check out, if you guys aren't subscribed to the PFF NFL Daily, check out episode 41, where we tried to make sense of that slapdash cornerback free agent market, Sam. Hmm. Uh, but the main gist of that was, 
every cornerback on the free agent market has been good at one point. Yeah. Two years ago, last year, three years ago, 10 years ago. It is a wide open free agent market. And Russell Wilson, who is very upset right now, more reports about how upset he is at how Seattle has built that team. I think he would be even more upset if they roll into the season with some subpar corners. I mean, that's a much bigger need for Seattle than even just the offensive line and making Russ happy. If they can't cover anybody next season in that back seven, plus KJ Wright's a free agent. I mean, Seattle's got some serious question marks in the secondary. But one, you know, maybe one more year of Shaq, Shaq Griffin is a good way to hedge there. I mean, I just think they're, it might not be a great move, but they're, they have banked themselves into a corner to the point where it might be one they have to make. Um, as far as cornerbacks go, he is number five on our board and number 37 overall, which is why you'd at least consider that. And then Hassan Reddick, I'm not doing it. I'm not buying into the, no. the small sample size and giving him the huge money. Yeah, I mean – so much of his stretch, even that great stretch of five games, was one game against Andrew Thomas where he just tore that guy to pieces. Poor Andrew. Like five sacks, right, in that one game. Um, I, yeah, there's too much bad tape or too much inconsistency, too much not getting it done in Hassan Reddick's tape for you to be like, yeah, even, even to be like, okay, one more year. Let's just see if he has it. I think you have to look at that and say, we're, we're willing to take that risk that he pans out somewhere else. All right, let's talk Bengals before we wrap this thing up. William Jackson, top corner on our list, number 16 overall. And then Carl Lawson, number two edge on our list. Uh, the best, highest pass, uh, pass uh, rushing grade last season among all free agent edge defenders. Are they going to keep at least one of those guys in town with the franchise tag? I think Lawson is the more likely candidate. Ch uh, Lawson to me is one of the did I say Shaq Lawson? I think you might have. Carl if Lawson. If you didn't, it led me into doing it. Carl so, Lawson yeah. is the edge defender on the Cincinnati Bengals, not Shaq. Carl Lawson, to me, is one of the more interesting players of this entire offseason. I don't know where the general perception is on him. Um, I've assumed for a while that he's one of those players that is just perennially underrated um, because he doesn't necessarily get – you know, phenomenal sack numbers. He doesn't, there's a lot of guys hitting free agency this year who have like incredible sack stats, like better than their level of play have suggested. Lawson's always been at the other end of that spectrum where he's probably generated fewer sacks than his level of play would suggest he does. Is he the new Brandon Graham? Yeah, so exactly the same kind of thing. So I, I've always assumed that he's very underrated by the, the league generally and therefore the marketplace. Um, but there's been a lot more talk recently about things like the franchise tag and how he would be a great target for Team X that needs a pass rusher, you know, not a Bud Dupree or whoever your, whoever the flip side of that equation is. So I don't quite know where the league stands on him. I think in theory he should still be a, a, an underrated player. He's a consistently very good pass rusher, not a great run defender, but you care less about that these days. Um, so I think he's a fantastic target for anybody or a good use of the franchise tag if you're Cincinnati. But I'm curious that I'm curious if his market is, is either greatly better or worse than that. Uh, Ramon Foster, former Steelers offensive lineman, does radio out in ten Tennessee. And I told you the Titans are itching for an edge defender. So I've done a few Tennessee radio hits. I know you're on their show a lot. 
and Ramon is former teammates with Bud Dupree. He loves Bud. He thinks he's great, mm -hmm. which is fine. Um, in his take on Carl Lawson, or us even ranking Carl Lawson <laughs> ahead of him, is essentially the league the league thinks he has one move, right? I've talked to tackles in the league, and they think, you know, we know how to handle him. And I don't. there's some truth to all of that and everything. I mean, here's the thing. If you put Carl Lawson in Bud Dupree's role on that Steelers defense the last two years, he would have better numbers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, all the, the pressures and, and all that stuff yes. that he had. All I'm saying is like this. So even if that's true, right, what we're able to do at PFF, just quantifying every play, even if that's true, tackles are comfortable against Carl Lawson and they know how to handle him. He still had the fourth most pressures in the league this year, right? And Bud, he got hurt. He only played 11 games. He was 30th. So Bud probably would have finished around 10th or whatever it is. But I just, I always cite the PFF pass rush grade because I know that those pressures that Carl Lawson is getting when he has an 85 pass rush grade, I know that those pressures are coming in one-on-one -on -one situations and pretty quickly based off of that grade and that they're more difficult to attain than Bud's who had a 61 pass rush grade. So I think for the Bengals, they have so many holes on defense. Keep Carl Lawson, franchise tag him, do what you can to try to bring William Jackson back. But I think he's going to hit the market. Carl Lawson had uh, 15 or 14, sorry, total pressures and 10 hits against the Pittsburgh Steelers last year. So... <laughs> so maybe he's for not as, talking to Steelers tackles. Well, yeah, for as, as comfortable as the tackles seem to be or allegedly are against Carl Lawson, not comfortable enough to stop him burying the quarterback the two times they, the Steelers played him. Yeah, so Lawson, again, like I said, he's been pretty close to an elite rusher in two out of his four seasons, and, and he was fantastic as a rookie. So I, I think he's the best pure rusher on the market. To your point, though, not as much of an every-down threat as some of the other guys. Uh, anyone else that we've missed here from a tag standpoint? I mean, there's always people you could argue for. But Trent I think Williams, would the Niners ever tag Trent Williams? Possibly. I mean, given how how good he was this year, he was our number one graded tackle in the NFL, number one graded run blocker, I think, at across not across all positions. Wyatt Teller was a guard, but number two then for uh, for Trent. Um, there's definitely an argument that you lock him down for one more year, right? Trent's 33 and using, I mean, the selling point, they're just all going to point to Andrew Whitworth. Right. They're going to point to all the old tackles. Right. That, I know Peters. I'm old, but look at him. He's, yeah. he's going fine. We're good. Trent Williams has been our number one graded offensive tackle in 2013, 16, and 20. So at various points throughout his career, he's been the very best tackle in the league. Brandon Scherf with the football team at guard is a possibility uh, to be franchise tagged. Uh, Joe Tooney, I can't expect goes back to New England on the franchise tag at that price. Do you uh, do you know where he's from? You see that was it Robert Mays tweeted sure. this? No, uh, Joe Tooney. No, he's from like forty five minutes up the road. A local boy. Really? Yeah, I didn't know that. Bengals have quite the need at a at offensive line. Oh, they're going to bring from him back. Middle Middletown or Middle something. A lot of Bengals fans are excited for Joe. Just Tooney. up to seventy five. Yeah, to be down here in you know a few minutes. There's a Joe Tooney connection, so we're going to talk to Joe Thomas in a minute here, or you know, show that interview. In the interview, we talked about David Bakhtiari. I hope we had technical difficulties, <laughs> so I don't know what's going to come out. We of We definitely interview. talked about it. Whether it's going to make it onto what you're listing. If you're different... on, if you're on YouTube, you might not be able to see Joe's face, uh, or. You know, again, technical difficulties. I think the audio is pretty good, but video started off. Video was lost at some point. Audio started off. Audio was lost at some point. We'll see what you get. We'll see what you get. It was a great discussion. But the point I brought up about David Bakhtiari, who is the best pass blocking left tackle in the league right now, struggling with power early in his career and just getting better and better and better. Joe Tooney was very similar. He was getting bull rushed like crazy as a rookie, and he just got better and better and better. And he's been a top 
10 guard in each of the last three seasons. I do think he hits the market, and I do think Cincinnati, hometown boy here, I do think Cincinnati has a chance to revamp their offensive line. If it's him plus a Panay Sewell in mm-hmm. the draft, Bengals are feeling much better Yeah, up front in front of Joe Burrow. So let's go to Joe Thomas and uh, all sorts of fun discussion here. All right, welcome back to the show, future Hall of Famer Joe Thomas. Joe, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. Is there anything more frustrating on the face of the earth than technology when it doesn't work? <laughs> yeah, this is this is take two here, Joe. Uh, <laughs> you want to you want to get into your internet situation or? Yeah, not really, because I'll probably start breaking things. Uh, <laughs> right, don't get apart. Don't get Joe. The NFL upset. Network pays a king's ransom for me to have the greatest internet that money can buy, and uh, it just is not working. I can't even pull up like AOL right now. It's pathetic. <laughs> but anyways. We persevere because that's what PFF deserves. Thank yes. you. That's what we do. So Joe from his from his iPhone, and uh, we're going to pick up right where we left off uh, last time when you were on the yeah. show. During the season, we were talking about how much you study, how much you actually uh, look at your opponent. But, you know, Sam, you had a follow-up on uh, JPP. Yeah, this was right around the time that JPP report surfaced. I think they were about to play the Green Bay Packers the first time around. And JPP said that he had no idea who David Bankdiari was, right? The, the guy he was going to be going up against that week. Doesn't pay attention to the, the offensive lineman that he's going to be going up against, his opponent, how it works, just concentrates on his own game. And, you know, we had some takes about that, but we're, we're really curious to hear what your take is, Joe. Yeah, I, you know, I, I get that defensive mentality a little bit is like, it's about us. It's not about what they do. You know, if we fly around and play hard and hit them, it doesn't matter. Like we're going to win our battles and I get that to some extent, but uh, I also kind of smell bullshit a little bit because David Bakhtiari is the best pass blocking tackle in the NFL at the left tackle position, which is where JPP primarily plays. And so for him to not even know who David Bakhtiari <laughs> is to me, I, I think that's kind of like a macho thing. Like, Oh, I don't even know who he is. Um, and I'm sure he probably could benefit from watching some film because I don't care who you are. If you know what your opponent's weaknesses are and you can kind of attack them a little bit or maybe set it up with some other things that you're going to do from a pass rush standpoint, that's only going to make you better. And I don't understand why you wouldn't want to do that. At least watch the bare minimum. Just watch the sack tape from that year and watch, hey, what are the moves that maybe gave David Bakhtiari a little bit of trouble? And maybe I'm going to keep that in my back pocket for the right moment in the game. That's the thing. It seems like you have to look at that sort of stuff, right? Even if you're not... Okay, you might not use it to completely change your game or, or how you're going to play, but you should have a vague idea of what he's good at and what he's bad at, right? It's just like a bare minimum of what you should expect to know going into a game. Well, how, yeah, It's Joe, like malpractice, Joe, not, not, not even looking at the scouting report and just watching a little bit of tape and figuring out like, hey, maybe on third and long, this guy might jump set me and I might want to be ready for that because if I can catch him, I can beat him to the inside with a quick putting my outside foot in the ground and I can get a sack. Like why wouldn't you want to know that information? Right. Is there an element to that in football though, where there's as, as an offensive tackle and pass protection, you're more, you're, you're in a, more of a reactionary position, right? Whereas he's the attacker, he's the aggressor, just like a wide receiver cornerback interaction. Is there something to, if you're the aggressor, you can do away with less film study, so to speak. Whereas in your case, it's like, I actually have to, I have to know how to react to all of these various moves yeah. that are coming at me. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of that to it because he's the one that's um, sort of instigating and um, 
beginning most of the pass rush, especially when you're rushing the passer. And so he can kind of dictate the tempo and the speed and what rushes he's going to have. But I mean, there's plenty of times that as an offensive lineman, I would try to change things up to screw up the rhythm of my defensive end that I'm going against. And if I'm a defensive end, I'd want to know those things. I'd want to know like just the basics of what the weaknesses are about this guy that I'm going against. So I can dictate, like I mentioned, like if you're a softer player, like if you're not a really big, strong and firm tackle uh, and I'm a defensive end, I'm going to probably try to take advantage of that. I'm going to give you a little bit more bull rush than usual, or maybe even what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait to bull rush you when the moment is right, when it's that third and long and the game's on the line. And I know, yeah, I've been setting him up with speed to the outside all game. And all of a sudden now I'm going to try to attack his weakness when the game's on the line. And even just, you might go through tape and it turns out your favorite move, that guy's never been beaten with in the entire season. You spend the entire yeah. game plugging away your your best stuff. With If you'd taken a look at the tape beforehand, you might have gone, well, you know what? Turns out he's actually susceptible to a bull rush instead. Maybe <laughs> we should go with that a bit more. Was there an official torch passing from you to David Bakhtiari when you retired? Did you say, hey, David, you're the best pass blocking left tackle? Because our, our grades absolutely backed that up. So like a ceremony? You, uh, yeah, was there a ceremony? We had a ceremony. It was at the Pro Bowl, I think, in Orlando, and it was over a few beers at the bar. And we probably don't remember what was said, but I was like, son, you got what it takes. It's time for you to take over the best pass blocking left tackle role you're the, the best now david you're and the best he's done a great job with it you know he, he hasn't he hasn't let us down he's fantastic not to get too much into bakhtiari i just remember early in his career it seemed like he didn't handle power all that well but everything else was really really good is there an element to that like where your play strength your functional strength is going to improve and if you are evaluating tackles it's like man if, if, if all he's dealing with is power uh that's something that's going to improve his footwork. Everything else looks just incredible, even early in his career, but he's just gotten better and better throughout the years. Yeah. Technique and biomechanics always supersede strength and explosion. Like when I was a rookie, that was as strong as my lower body ever was, but that's also as weak as my playing strength was because I learned how to use leverage and angles in my ankles, knees, and hips to be able to create more power in the run game and then in the pass game as I got older. And so even though I probably was 20% weaker in my lower body when I was in my 11th season, nobody was going to bull rush me because I was able to, first of all, react and get into those strong positions um, much more quickly. And so I was able to avoid being taken advantage of being a smaller offensive lineman who maybe wasn't as strong as I used to be by winning with biomechanics and leverage. Are you a good coach? You know, like some like really great players aren't good coaches. Can you teach that? Are you good at teaching that? Do you aspire to teach that? Because you obviously you have a lot of knowledge. Well, you'd have to ask some of the guys that I've worked with if I'm any good at it. But I feel like I've got a really good eye for that type of stuff because I was lucky. Like my last few years in the NFL, I was kind of banged up. So I really didn't practice much. And I put that coaching hat on for several seasons at the end of my career. And even after I retired, I stuck around with the Browns because I was rehabbing my elbow injury. And so I got a chance to work with those guys. And and I feel like from a schematic standpoint, the O-line coaches in the NFL, they're way better than me. Like they understand the bigger picture way better than I do if they're drawn up a game plan. But if you're asking me about individual techniques of tackle play, honestly, I mean, I know this might sound egotistical, but I don't know if there's anybody that I've ever talked to who understands the minutia of playing left tackle better than I do because for the back half of my career, that's all I did is I sat in those meetings because I kind of 
knew what I was supposed to do from a scheme standpoint. So I just sat there and I did trial and error stuff. And I tried to study and talk to people outside of the game of football to help understand the biomechanics of what I was doing so I could apply it to my position. And that's what I did for five, five or six years. And I think as an offensive line coach, team a lot and so they don't get to drill down the way I did as a player when I would just sit in those meetings and try to keep myself amused between crossword puzzles and breaking down the minutia of the uh, ankle flexion and how that would help me stop the bull rush so that's that's an interesting uh point I think as far that's happening with with quarterbacks now where quarterbacks are going to coaches in the offseason and it's all about you know throwing mechanics and footwork and all that stuff Where's that balance? Because the offensive line coach's job is to get you ready to play on Sunday, right? Is to get ready for you to play within the scheme. How many of them have the expertise in technique and, you know, scheme and game planning? Or is there a world where there should be, say, like a technique coach and then your traditional coach? Because I think other positions kind of have that that question as well. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I do think that that is one of the areas in the nfl that they can really improve and I, it's interesting you mentioned that i've never thought about that but i mean you look at baseball they've got hitting coaches they've got pitching coaches that specifically are focused on the biomechanics things and i don't understand in football especially at those super technical positions you know for a fact that it's way more about the guys you see coming out of the draft every year with incredible natural ability but they never master the technique so they're not able to stick around and play a long time in the nfl so that's a great point i, I would love to coach because i have a deep passion for kind of sharing the things that i learned during my career with other guys and um but i also don't have the time to be in the office until midnight every night talking about scheme and breaking down the next opponent um, like offensive line coaches have to do. So maybe there's a, a way I can weasel my way into the NFL as a technique coach and not have to pull those long hours like offensive line coaches do. Yeah, anything you can do to avoid the long hours is always a bonus. I, I'm just glad Joe brought up baseball before I did. Of course, yeah. Show. Yeah, it's, it feels like a conspiracy at this point between everybody other than me. Um, Joe, the, the Super Bowl was interesting because obviously the Kansas City offensive line got absolutely destroyed. Eric Fisher went down in the championship game, but the way they handled it was what was interesting. They didn't just put next man up at left tackle, replace Eric Fisher with his backup. They shuffled the entire offensive line, right tackle to left tackle, right guard to right tackle, and it just made everything worse. Um, what's your take on that? Should, should teams just accept that you're going to get a lot worse at one position rather than trying to sort of reshuffle the entire unit to try and figure out what the best five is? Yeah, I think that's the right strategy. And I've had offensive line coaches on both sides of this argument where we go into a game and say, all right, if you know, the right guard goes down, we're going to move the center to right guard because he's better at right guard than the backup right guard is and the guy that's his replacement. It can only play center and, you end up making all these shuffles and what happens is you make two positions worse, but even more than that. And I think this is something that people sort of overlook when they're making this argument um, for kind of reshuffling the offensive line. When one guy gets hurt is that if you take your center, who's probably a pretty good center and you move them over to right guard because the right guard got hurt. Now you've made both those positions a little worse off, but you've also made the communication between the left guard and the center worse. 
because those guys are used to working together and you move that center over. Now your fits in the run game are worse. Your nonverbal communication and pass pro is worse. And so you've actually made three positions at minimum worse off than if you would just put replace one for one when that right guard goes down. And so I'm a big believer in, Hey, if you got somebody that gets hurt, just replace them with whoever your next best guy is, who's not playing and then just bite the bullet and deal with it. Because so many times you see these complete reshufflings of the offensive line and it ruins all the communication. It ruins the fits and you end up having an offensive line. That's kind of scratching their head. And one thing I know about offensive line is that when things start going bad, it's like it snowballs because I think the defensive line, they kind of smell blood in the water. The offensive line loses a little bit of confidence. And then the offensive coordinator, he kind of throws out part of the playbook because he starts saying, all these plays that I had planned on, you know, one single up blocking and some of these shots downfield, we can't do that anymore because our offensive line can't block anybody. And so you get really basic, you get very predictable. And it just seems like that was one of the big things that plagued the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. So speaking of position changes I think you spoke to this recently about Quentin Nelson in the Colts right he is right the best guard in the NFL right now they're the Colts have a, a left tackle issue because Anthony Costanzo just retired and there's rumors that they want to move Quentin Nelson to left tackle is this I, I think you disagreed with it but how hard do you disagree with this is this just such a challenging move or, or what should the Colts do to, uh, I, to I would like out. to extremely vehemently disagree with that <laughs> strategy. I don't know. Uh, I, I I talked with one of the Indianapolis Colts reporter about this, and I said, you know, Quentin Nelson's a fantastic guard, but the things that make him great at guard don't necessarily make him great at tackle. They might, but why would you take that risk when you've got the best potentially left guard in football, or at least top three? Because I love my guy Joel Batonio, but uh, I might be a little biased there. But anyway, see, <laughs> let's say you got the top three guard. Why would you move him out to tackle? First of all, there's no guarantee he's going to have success. He's not a guy that's ever played uh, tackle for any length of time. But also now you've made your left guard worse, clearly, because nobody on that team can even touch Quinton Nelson as a left guard. And you've also made your left tackle worse. Why don't you find a guy who can play left tackle, put him out there, and then at least when you're strategizing during the season, you say, all right, we know our left guard is going to be great in this play. We can help the left tackle if we need to. But if Quinton starts struggling, now you got to help your left guard. You got to help your left tackle. And it just makes everybody on that whole line worse. And so I think the Colts, not that they really give a shit what I have to say, but <laughs> I would keep the all pro left guard that you got right where he is and try to find and develop a guy to play left tackle. What about if this was a move um, uh, for, for a guy who was coming into the NFL? Because we've made this argument before that if you have a prospect as talented and as, as potentially great as Quentin Nelson, you should let him prove that he can't play the more valuable position first. So when he's coming out and you have this choice of do we plug him in a guard where we're pretty sure he's going to be a superstar or maybe we can give him a shot at left tackle because if he can come close to that level of play there – it's just way more valuable. So would you hate the move as much if they were doing this in year one before they'd seen that he was an all-pro yeah. superstar at guard? I think that argument has a lot more legitimacy because you're talking about a blob of clay coming out of college, right? Like these guys, yeah, they've been coached and they've gone through training camps, but the difference between a guy that's coming out of college and where he's going to be in three or four years when you're talking about technique, when you're talking about actually playing ability is going to be so incredible. It's going to be night and day because the amount of time that you're working on your craft when you're in the NFL practices, meetings, and the level of coaching that you're getting is at least 
four to five times greater than what you're getting in college. And so that's when guys were asking me last year about Jed Wills and his transition from playing right tackle. And if he could change it over and play left tackle, I said, that's going to be no problem because he's going to get more practice time and more meeting time in the first 30 days in Cleveland, if the, the Browns drafted him, which they ended up doing, then he got in four years at Alabama because you have to go to school when you're in college, you're spending 60, 70% of your day going to school and being a kid when you're in college. Whereas in the NFL, all that time now is on the practice in the meeting field. So you have plenty of time to develop and you're going to develop a lot more as a rookie in the NFL. So why not try to put Quentin out there? You've got in a normal off season, a bunch of OTAs, a bunch of mini camp to give you a pretty good idea. If that's a position that he can play long-term and you know what, by the end of OTAs or mini camp, if you see, he just, doesn't look like he's going to be able to pick it up you can easily slide him into guard because i think guard now this might be biased because i'm a tackle here born and bred but i think guard is just a much easier position to learn and you can learn it much more quickly and the transition from trying to do tackle stuff to going back and doing guard stuff which is what you did in college is just a much quicker and easier transition you might as well try to see what you can do as as a tackle when you're a rookie correct you've admitted your bias a couple times now yeah tackles Joel Batonio <laughs> well, that's not a problem anymore it used to be one of those things where you had to be this unbiased journalistic standard now people like the bias they like the you know yeah. the takes that it produces uh, so speaking of bias left tackle versus right tackle you are a left tackle protecting the blind side and all that stuff are they equal positions though in the NFL left versus right tackle are they just as important as each other yes I think so because Ooh. if you look at how stupid first of all defenses were like in the 90s where <laughs> they would just put their best player over on the blind side so their best defensive lineman pass rusher would automatically go block, play over the left tackle because they wanted them to be coming from the blind side right and you know there was maybe a little more of an argument back then when you had more statue quarterbacks just stand in the pocket throwing the ball but they didn't realize that part of the rules in the nfl and in all football is defenses can move so Why would I take my best pass rusher and let him get locked up all day against a guy like Orlando Pace or Walter Jones when I can easily just move him over to the other side and then I have a great matchup who he's probably going to win 60-70% of his matchups against a bum right tackle versus letting him get locked up all day against a great Pro Bowl Hall of Fame left tackle. So um, I think because defenses realized they were allowed to move guys and you see just as many great pass rushers over right tackle as you do left tackle right now, it's easy to make the argument that both tackle positions are just as important. And really it's more about what that individual player is better at playing, whether it be left tackle or right tackle. For me, I was a better left tackle because that's what I did my entire career. And it would have been harder for me to go and play on the other side. But if there's a guy who's a great player, who's, was a great right tackle might as well just leave him over there if you feel like he's going to have a hard time switching to the other side now one real quick point before i get too long-winded is the browns moved jed wills from right tackle to left tackle when they drafted him but i don't think that was because they valued a left tackle more than a right tackle right that's because they signed jack conklin in free agency who had been a right tackle a long time in the nfl and he had really molded himself and it would be hard later on in your career to move you from right tackle to left tackle so it was much easier to your point to transition a guy when they're coming out of college from right to left than it is later on in your career when you've already kind of built in a lot of habits, good or bad. Thank you, Joe. I mean, I wrote about this like eight years ago, so it's nice to have you come on and confirm all of that, even as a biased <laughs> left tackle. 
Uh, but yeah, the NFL, I mean, you've got to block Von Miller and Khalil Mack and all that stuff. So the right tackle is going to be just as good as the left tackle in general. I am still amazed. Yeah, I, though. I think Mitchell Schwartz really, to me, justified that argument when yeah. the Chiefs signed him because at that time in the AFC West was uh, Melvin Ingram, Von Miller, and Khalil Mack that the Chiefs had to deal with. Right. And you can't tell me that finding a way to block those dudes one on one was more important than just putting somebody else over there as, as a left tackle to block whoever was going to be lining up over him. So um, I, I think you guys are spot on. And I, I think mostly in the NFL, people realize that it doesn't matter who you have. You need to be able to protect both edges equally well. I'm still amazed sometimes how bad defenses are at actually moving an elite pass rusher away from a really quality blocker, regardless of which side it is. You know, they, they will still sometimes just plow that guy play after play into the dude yes. that's elite and doing a good job of blocking him as opposed to just moving him over a weak link somewhere and letting him go to town. Yeah. Well, yeah. Definitely. It's like malpractice. I remember um, an example of somebody who actually did it is I was playing against the Denver Broncos earlier on in my career. Elvis Dumerville lined up the first couple snaps uh, in third and long over me. I blocked him. I never saw him the rest of the game. He went over and moved over the right tackle. They were smart enough to realize, hey, why would I run my best pass rusher into a brick wall when I can go over to this fish over here and go get five or six pressures on the day? Um, we're reaching this, the NFL silly season now. You know, prospects, draft stuff, everybody's going to be focusing in on the most ridiculous things possible. And for a while, you were like the poster child for some draft people for arm length. Um, but it's, I think it was some kind of, Mitchell Schwartz tells me that you, your initial arm length uh, figure was wrong. Somehow you like cheated the system or you didn't get measured correctly. <laughs> so your arms were down in the database as like 32 inches, which is the sort of panic cutoff point of this guy can never play <laughs> in the NFL. But he says the whole thing is like bullshit. What's, do you know the story yeah, there? Or I need what's the, the truth. Deal? I need the truth here. Here's the truth. Uh, I love having the arm length conversation because you, you guys are great. I, I love listening to you guys because you challenge the status quo. And the combine is like such an archaic event that they just keep doing a lot of the same drills because that's what they've been doing forever. And it gives them a way to compare current players to former players and how they were evaluated. Um, but a lot of times the tests that they're using aren't even accurate, like the vertical jump test and like how they measure how high you reach and then how high you're able to jump over that. But the worst test of all is the arm length, because I don't know if you've seen it. Basically, you just, I, I think you stick your arm out straight or you put it down at your side and they just take like an old school Taylor's tape measure and just <laughs> kind of guess where your shoulder joint is and measure to the end of your mid middle finger, which first of all, if arm length even did matter, which I don't think it matters because I don't see a lot of guys blocking with straight arms anyway, at least guys that are currently in the NFL, those are the guys that get cut on day one because <laughs> they suck. But if anybody is actually blocking with straight arms, I don't think they're blocking with the end of their middle finger, right? Like who like punches with the top of their middle finger, which is what you're measuring when you're measuring arm length. You're not measuring the length of your arm to the pad of your hand, which is what's making contact when you're punching and grabbing a defensive lineman. So what you're getting is a large portion of that arm measurement is how long are their fingers, which have no <laughs> impact whatsoever on your ability to play offensive linemen, right? So I played with some guys who had really, really long middle fingers, like ridiculous <laughs> size middle fingers, and they are measuring their arm a full inch and a half 
And when you're talking about these these nerdy scouts that are saying like, oh, 35, that's a really long arm, but 33 and a half, oh, it can't play in the NFL. Well, maybe the dude's got an inch and a half longer middle <laughs> finger, and that's why you're measuring whether he could play in the NFL or he can't. I mean, the whole arm length thing is ridiculous. If me personally was doing it again, what I would do is, first of all, I would measure arm arm length from your sternum. Like I would put a, like a, a board or a wall right down their sternum, and I would ask them to reach as far as they possibly can for both hands. And when their middle fingers were aligned, now you're going to be able to get somewhat of a measurement that measures how far away can they reach and grab somebody. But I wouldn't measure to the end of their middle fingers. I would measure to their wrist joint. So at least you have like a realistic idea of, all right, how far away is that person when this player is going to be able to go and grab them? But even in that case, like the difference between an inch or two in your arms really doesn't make that much of a difference when you're blocking a guy because you're blocking with, like I talked about earlier on, you're blocking with bend in your wrists and your elbows and your shoulders. And so the whole idea of like having these 35 plus inch arms makes much of a difference versus like a 33 or 32 inch arms. It's just baloney, really. And it's a worthless measurement. Joe, fantastic answer. I appreciate the passion. <laughs> I appreciate that you're going to change the game with you know a better way of measuring things. But you didn't answer the question, how long are your arms? Oh, I, I have to know. Back to the initial question. I have to know exactly what the answer is. Because let me just tell you, I have you in our database right here at PFF, PFFIQ. Uh. 32 and a half inch arms. I need to know if this is right or wrong. I have you in the seventh percentile. Whew, and yeah. uh, I, I just need to know if that's the right the right number. That's it. Honestly, my, my best answer is I'm not even sure because here's what happens. So when you're a junior and uh, the scouts start coming around to your college, like they have a junior day where they, I think they measure maybe you're 40 and they do some measurements on you. Now this is almost 20 years ago. So I'm having a hard time remembering exactly. But basically there's a scout from, like each team that kind of shows up and gets preliminary measurements on all the guys that might come out for the draft. And I think at that point, my arms were like 34 and a half or 35. It was something that I didn't really pay attention to, but it was not out of the ordinary. Right. So then they go ahead uh, next year when I'm at the combine, they measure me again and my arms somehow shrunk in one year. And so I think that's why I didn't even really pay attention to it. Cause I'm like, first of all, you're, you're, your measurements are completely inaccurate, but it did become a thing. Like I remember having to, push back at this going into yeah. the draft because everyone's like well you know your film's pretty good but i don't think you'll be able to play tackle in the nfl because your arms are too short I'm like arms are short like people <laughs> walk around and i can't even tie my belt because i got these little midget arms i i i uh i didn't understand the whole argument and maybe if i see you guys in person in a non-covid situation we can have an official arm measure off with the yes. broken method that is currently used at the NFL Combine and find out how long my arms actually are. We'll get the Taylor's tape measure out and we'll get a definitive for, answer. For now, we'll put you down for between 32 and 35. <laughs> so that's between Perfect. the fifth percentile and like the 50th percentile in the system. Yes. So that's great. I think it's somewhere it's, in there. Note how it's the six foot 10 guy who's hammering on arm length incessantly in this interview. I've got a great tackle body. I'm just saying. Well, six ten yeah. length. You're, you're a little bit lightweight. I think you position. want me to put on, put on even more weight. You can bulk up. You can add a, add a few poundage. Listen, That's true. Joe, I want to talk about that as well. I think I've got a good idea of the answer to this, but why do offensive linemen weigh 310, 315 pounds? Why not go out there jack to the gills at 250? Like, what's the extra weight achieving? Inertia. There you go. That's, that's why you got to put on weight, Steve. You're never going to make it a tackle. If, if you look you at the power 
and the force production curve. Um, it's not a straight line, which is redundant. It's it's a curve. Um, and I haven't been able to break this down and I haven't been able to find like somebody who's really good with science and biomechanics to be able to draw it up. But basically there's a point of diminishing returns with adding weight where you're losing so much more quickness and speed that you don't gain anything with the initial mass, but the additional mass. But it seems like most human beings can get to that 290 to 315, 320 range with very little reduction in quickness and speed. Now you're gonna have a little bit, but that additional force that they can create by having that extra mass is greatly beneficial for an offensive lineman. But then you get to that 320, 325 on most guys, and you just become very stiff, very slow, very unable to change direction. And then I think it's like sort of an individual situation where you have to decide like, what's my best playing weight? But the guys that really are some of the best offensive tackles, offensive linemen in the NFL are guys that are able to get up like a Quentin Nelson up to that 340, 345 range with a, a very small reduction in their quickness and speed. Because as everybody knows, if you've watched powerlifting or if you watch the Olympic lifting or even wrestling, like bigger bodies are stronger, they're more powerful. And the more mass you have as an offensive lineman, the better. Right. And that's why one part of the sort of old school, you know, eye test stuff that actually is relevant is where they're looking at that guy and saying, what's his frame like? Like how much extra weight can he carry? Because there is something to that, right? It's, it's, it's exactly yeah. what Joe's saying that the inertia that you get from that extra mass, if you can carry that extra weight without losing, you know, the speed and quickness and explosion, then it is kind of important. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Last question, Joe, we'll let you get out of here. I saw you were on the Titan games, obviously, which is pretty awesome. Um, and I saw that The Rock sent you a signed <laughs> photograph. And I'm curious, you're, you must be on the other end of this most of the time, but do you get starstruck for, for a guy like The Rock, who's you know one of the most famous human beings on the planet at this point? Yeah, I mean, how, how do you not get starstruck? Just being around the guy and then I don't know. Like I'm, I'm so like bashful about the whole situation because there's no way that me as a former ex NFL offensive lineman should be getting signed autographs with really nice notes from the most famous and cool dude in the history of the world. who is Dwayne Johnson, the rock. Um, I don't know what I did in a former life to deserve it, but I'm extremely humbled because I was starstruck just being in the same room as him during the Titan games and for him to even know my name and like sign an autograph for me, it just completely blows me away. It it puts me beyond even how I was when I was a little kid, like watching Brett Favre and Reggie White for the Packers and just dreaming of seeing those guys in person one day and having them pat me on the top of my head. Like, I, I, don't, I really, I don't even know how to put into words how cool that made me feel <laughs> when Dwayne Johnson sent me that photo and then tweeted at me too, which was, uh, you know, the shallow social media side of me was really happy yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Got that adrenaline rush on Twitter. No, that was awesome. That was great. But you know, future yeah. hall of famer, he's a WWE hall of famer. You guys are basically equivalents, Joe. Like yeah. We're pretty person. much the same person. Joe uh, Joe's was a better football player. Yeah. You were a better football player than him too. That's why there he looks go. up to you. You were living yeah, his dream. That's right. Anyway, Joe, really appreciate it. That was awesome. We'll have you again a third time because it's fantastic. Always a uh, fascinating discussion. Uh, 
NFL, what are you doing this offseason? Where can we find you, and, and what's your plan now as we head into uh, Combine and off the yeah. draft season? Uh, currently, you can find me on a frozen lake in Wisconsin, drilling a hole, trying to catch <laughs> some fish, catch me some dinner. Uh, <laughs> I'm used to being right now at the Combine doing the offensive line breakdown stuff with Sean O'Hara, but obviously it's changed a little bit with COVID, so I'm just kind of chilling, really, uh, just do fun stuff like this, hanging out with you guys. I'm on Twitter at JoeThomas73. You can find me on Cameo. Um, and then really I'm just kind of treading water until the draft in uh, Cleveland. I'm hoping to get out there and be part of the draft coverage in Cleveland this year. Awesome. I hope the rock buys one of your cameos. I think that's, right. <laughs> oh, we yeah. should do that. We should just get no, him on every really show through something. cameo. Do a whole show through cameo. No, just get him on every show with cameo. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so we get to pay to pay to get him on here. Yeah. All right. That yeah. makes sense. <laughs> anyway, Joe, really appreciate it. We'll talk, man. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. We'll talk to you later. Thanks. All right, that was Joe. I don't know what you guys heard, but I think it was a great interview. I hope Mike keeps in take one right there, to be honest, and uh, does and leaves your all right. I'll do leaves your clunky one. transition. I want to recap what we talked about with Joe Thomas, but I have no idea what made the cut here. Yeah, uh, Joe Joe's awesome. He's one of our favorite guests. I think that we've had on. We got a bit more time with him this time. Now, granted, much of that was chewed up by his internet falling over and taking a crap. Come but, on, NFL. Uh, but yeah, he's he's an awesome. Uh, he had better internet from his farm. Yeah, in the middle of nowhere. He did, and I, I yeah, maybe he should have stayed on the farm. He's one of those fun guys as well. Where I, I I've always had a soft spot for these types of players that turn pundit analyst analyst after their careers, where they were so good in their playing days that their word is kind of unimpeachable. You know, when they say something, you you can't like, you can't argue it. It's just like ah crap. Like Joe says something and Joe is better than I was or yeah. better than I am. So I just have to live with it. Right. And they know that. And there's this, there's a lot of guys who won't ever say anything because they're kind they're sort of aware of that. And they, it's just, it's a bit unseemly, you know, to be like, well, here's my opinion and there's nothing you can do with it. Then there's some guys like Joe Thomas is, is happy to say these things. There's a few of these pundits down the years where they're, they're just acutely aware that, Hey, I know things, you know, I know things. And because I was as good as I was, you can't say anything about it. You just have to deal with it and suck it up. And it's great. He's happy to sort of say, yeah, you know, I was that good. I was really good at this stuff. I shut these guys down. Why would you even test me, bitch? You know? <laughs> he He's like, yeah, they tried Von Miller against me one time and said, why would you run into a brick wall? Go get that other guy. But he's got this great way of doing it where it's not like, it's not hyper arrogant or, yeah. you know, obnoxious. It's just... It's truth, and you know it's truth, and there's nothing you can do about it. But again, he was he was that good because he was worried about ankle angles and you know and the tape functional study. strength and, uh, yeah. and and getting that much better through the years. Like if you go back and listen to our first interview with him, and he was saying that the guy that gave him the most trouble down the years was somebody you've never heard of, Scott Solomon, because he just didn't pop up on the scouting report. So when he played him in the preseason, he had no earthly idea what he did. Whereas, you know, going up against Von Miller or Elvis Doomerville or whoever elite pass rusher he was actually facing, he understood what that guy did. So it wasn't, wasn't a problem. Like the guy that caused him problems was somebody that he just hadn't watched on tape. The one part that may have gotten cut out that I thought was really interesting that could be a game changer in the NFL. You know how you're always looking for where the market inefficiencies and all that fun stuff. That's the money ball theory. The idea of having scheme coaches and technique coaches the fact that quarterbacks go to quarterback gurus so to speak in the offseason not to learn how to you know 
read slant flat just to work on their footwork and mechanics and all that stuff. Offensive linemen have started to do that more with Duke, Manyweather, and a guy like Joe Thomas who's teaching the fine points of technique. Are Is there a, a world where organizations get better and say, hey, I hired this offensive line coach, the secondary coach or whatever, and their, their strength is just getting this guy ready to play. In our system, in our scheme, game planning, that's his strength. He's not as great at solving weaknesses in players. Could you split that role into two things? Maybe some teams are already doing that, but I just think that might be a fascinating way teams could go at some point. Well, particularly if it's done in-house and you can tie it to what you do. Like, I think part of the problem, so it's the, some of these gurus are great, but if they're teaching somebody something that doesn't quite gel with the offensive strategy that you have or even the defensive strategy that you have, it's not necessarily helpful. Right. So I, I know sometimes teams bristle at these quarterback gurus because they're they're coaching something that you don't really want. It it's it doesn't quite mesh with what you're doing on offense. So your your quarterback goes away, tries to get better in the offseason, learns a bunch of stuff that like or spends his entire time working on something that doesn't doesn't quite sync with what it is you're doing. And that like that didn't help. Like that made things worse, if anything. So right. like hiring the guy in-house and being like, okay, now you can focus on the game plan stuff and right. this guy is gonna spend his entire time dealing with the technique stuff. I think that's definitely a potential area of um, like an edge advantage for some of these teams, particularly because look, the salary cap in the NFL is a pain in the ass. It's essentially a limiting tool for how good you can get. There's no salary cap for coaches. You can hire as many coaches as you want. It's just down to how much the owner is prepared to spend and give you money to do it. So if you have a, an owner that legitimately says, Hey, I just want to win. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a blank checkbook here. You tell me what we need to do to win. That's where you you start making real advantages is hiring yeah. those guys. I think there's, it could be a way to go. And I, I just appreciate that Joe compared it to baseball. And of course. You know, hitting yes. and pitching coaches. But but it's true. Like the, there are pitching coaches in, in in Major League Baseball who are not good at teaching mechanics. They're really good at just preparing you for a game. And I think there's it's the same thing in the NFL. Um, and it could be a way the teams go and find advantages in the coming years. Anyway, great, great always talking to Joe Thomas. Love talking franchise tag and free agency. Next week, do you want to fix every team? Hmm. You never signed off on my idea offline, so I'll sure. put you on the spot. Okay. Do you want to try to fix every team next week? Okay. Yeah. AFC it. show and an uh, NFC show. We'll fix every team. Tell your friends we're going to fix your team next week, and we'll do that through free agency in the draft and give all sorts of options and what your team should do, give you a little roadmap this offseason. So we appreciate everybody for tuning in. We'll be back Monday. We'll fix uh, half the teams in the league starting Monday. Wave, Steve. Let's win. Bye, guys.